Reality family, welcome to the teaching portion of our online gathering. We're grateful that you're joining us today as we start a new series in Genesis. I almost said the Gospel of Mark because we were in that series for 18 weeks. So we spent the most of the majority of this year uh, looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of King and Kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is the culmination of the entire Bible. He's the central figure. He has God become human and the climax of the story. And now in this series, we're going to go back for nine weeks and look at the very beginning, the first chapters of the story. Genesis is the first book. Genesis 1 is the first chapter. And this series is called In the Beginning, the first three words of the story of the Bible. And our hopes are that by doing so, we'll actually be able to see Jesus in more beautiful ways and pull out themes and stories that Jesus comes to fulfill. So I hope you'll join us for this series. And I'm really excited as we get started. When we talked about the Gospel of, of Mark, I used an analogy to start our series off where I talked about the Gospel of Mark is trying to do the same thing for us as, as my idea of barbecue. When I was a kid, I had a Coleman idea of barbecue. It was a very small, non-exciting vision. And uh, as I went and learned about Texas barbecue, my excitement and vision for what barbecue could be blew up. And that's the same thing that the Gospel of Mark wants to do for us, is expose us, take the small ideas we have of Jesus and of King and Kingdom of the Gospel and make them big and beautiful and something worth giving our lives for. And so we, I want to start this series in the same way, by uh, giving us a, uh, something to hang on to, something that will help guide us at least through the first part of our series together. And this is a, a story that we're going to be reading, the beginning of the story of the Bible, the first chapter. And so I thought it would be really great for us to start with a story as well, a kid's story. One of the favorite authors uh, in our home for, for children's books, his name's Mo Willems. You may be familiar with him. He's wrote books like Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus and The Elephants and Piggy series. And he's got this wonderful story called Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs. So take a listen as he reads that for us. Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs As retold by Mo Willems Once upon a time, there were three dinosaurs. Papa Dinosaur, Mama Dinosaur, and some other dinosaur who happened to be visiting from Norway. I feel. One day, for no particular reason, the three dinosaurs made up their beds, positioned their chairs just so, and cooked three bowls of delicious chocolate pudding at varying temperatures. Oh boy, said Papa Dinosaur in his loud, booming voice. It is finally time to leave and go to the... Uh, 
someplace else. Then the other dinosaur made a loud noise that sounded like a big evil laugh. But was probably just a polite Norwegian expression. The three dinosaurs went someplace else and were definitely not hiding in the woods waiting for an unsuspecting to come up. Sure enough, by the great dinosaur yelling, Gotcha! But I'm pretty sure it was just the wind. The loud noise was immediately followed by another loud noise that sounded kind of like, Be patient, Papa Dinosaur! The trap is not yet sprung! But that could have been a rock falling. Or a squirrel. Either way, Goldilocks was not the type of little girl who listened to anyone or anything. For example, Goldilocks never listened to warnings about the dangers of barging into strange, enormous houses. So as soon as Goldilocks came across a strange, enormous house, she barged right in. Hello, strange, enormous house! I'm coming to visit! Hello! Inside, Goldilocks immediately smelled the three bowls of delicious chocolate pudding. Mmm, said Goldilocks. That chocolate pudding smells delicious! And then Goldilocks noticed a very tall ladder that just happened to be there and certainly wasn't left on purpose. Goldilocks climbed up the ladder and found herself face to face with three gigantic bowls of chocolate pudding. Mm, I'm gonna eat. Mm. Oh, the first bowl of chocolate pudding was too hot. Oh, scalding yet delicious. But Goldilocks ate it all anyway because hey, it's chocolate pudding, right? The second bowl of chocolate pudding was too cold. But who cares about temperature when you've got a big bowl of chocolate pudding? Not her. The third bowl of chocolate pudding was just right. Goldilocks was on such a roll by now, she hardly noticed. Soon, Goldilocks was stuffed, 
like one of those delicious chocolate-filled little girl bonbons. Oh, I don't feel so good. Oh. Which, by the way, are totally not the favorite things in the whole world for hungry dinosaurs. Tired and groggy, Goldilocks noticed three chairs in the one, living room. So she climbed down the ladder and walked out of the kitchen. The first chair was too tall. The second chair was too tall. But the third chair was too tall. Goldilocks wasn't going to climb that high just to sit in some chair, so she hiked over to the bedroom. When she got there, Goldilocks noticed that the beds were also gigantically big. What is going on around here? groaned the exhausted girl. The bears that live here must be nuts! Just then, the room filled with a loud, booming noise that was either a passing truck or a dinosaur gloating. A few more minutes and you'll be asleep! Delicious chocolate-filled little girl bonbons are yummier when they're rested! <laughs> I'm so excited! Even a little girl who never listens to anyone or anything had to hear that. Goldilocks took a minute to stop and think. Which was longer than she was used to stopping and thinking. Home! Sweet dinosaur home! Mm. Hey! She told herself. This isn't some bear's house! This is some dinosaur's house! Say what you like about Goldilocks, but she was no fool. As quickly as she could, she ran to the back door and got out of there. <laughs> Just then, a loud plane flew by, which sounded pretty much like a trio of dinosaurs yelling, No! Or, No! Or the Norwegian expression for time. Suddenly, and completely coincidentally, the three dinosaurs rushed through the front door. But they were too late. Goldilocks was gone, and all that was left in the house were three disappointed dinosaurs. The And the moral is, if you ever find yourself in the wrong story, leave. And the moral for dinosaurs is, lock the back door. We're sorry, Mama. Dark and flock on cars here. What a great book and a great story. I encourage you to go and grab some of Mo Willem's books from the library or borrow some from us or purchase them from your local bookstore. No matter what uh, age and stage you're at, I think they're, they're a lot of fun to read. We're going to come back to this story many times throughout this series, but today I just want to pick up on one of the morals that he shares at the end of the story. He says, if you ever find yourself in the wrong story, leave. If you ever find yourself in the wrong story, leave. And I think many of us can relate to this idea that we find ourselves in the wrong story in our lives. Maybe we feel like an actor in a story that we're not a part of or the script doesn't fit our lives. Um, 
But I think that many of us also feel like this when it comes to Genesis, specifically Genesis 1. We're familiar with the story of Genesis 1, like we might be familiar with the story of Goldilocks. It's something that we heard when we were a little kid. But as we grow up, the story becomes less and less familiar. It feels like it does in the story of Goldilocks and the three dinosaurs, that it's the wrong story. And part of that is because it's an ancient text and it doesn't fit into our modern world. It's probably at least 2,000, 2,500 years old. And so it becomes a fuel for much debate and controversy, both inside and outside the church about things like evolution and gender and race and the age of the earth and what it means to be human. And so we don't know what to do with this as modern people today dealing with an old text. And because these chapters are so ancient and controversial, we might, like Mo Willem says, like find ourselves being in the wrong story. And, and so we leave. Some of us don't leave the faith altogether, but what we do is we relegate the story to the back of our minds, maybe to the basements of our churches. It's a kid's story. That's who needs this story. And um, you know, for me, it's kind of something I learned when I was young and I don't really pay much attention to it anymore. For some of us, we, we double down on weird parts of the story and we make it into a story that it's not supposed to be. We don't take it as an ancient story, but we try to make it very, very modern in our world today. And so we double down weirdly. So it might be analogous to saying this, reading Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs and saying, you know, you might not believe it, but there actually were Norwegian dinosaurs. Um, you know, the, the, the media doesn't want you to know that, but Christian paleontologists all know that there are real Norwegian dinosaurs. Or we might say something like, there, you know, if you don't believe that a little girl can eat three dinosaur-sized bowls of chocolate pudding, you're not a real Christian. And so we make the story into something it's not to be. We're missing out on what the story is because we're looking at it like modern people. And then others of us get really embarrassed by those people who do those things. And so we pull back from the story too. We exit the story in a different way because of embarrassment. Or we might in the back of our minds think, you know, maybe if I don't believe that there were Norwegian dinosaurs and that little girls could eat three massive size bowls of chocolate pudding, then maybe I'm not real Christian. Maybe I don't truly believe. And so we might exit the story altogether and say, this story, this is the beginning of the story. I can't get along with it. I can't make sense of it. Then probably the whole rest of the story is not for me. But in my reading, this is not what Genesis 1 is designed to do. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Genesis 1 is an invitation, an invitation to not only a story of God and to meet God in this story, but to the whole rest of the story of God. It's an invitation to understand at the core level who we are as people, what kind of a world that we live in and what it means that there might be a God behind this whole world. It's another way of saying that it's not a story we're supposed to leave, but a story we're invited to enter and live in. And so we're gonna enter or spend the next nine weeks looking at this story together. And we're gonna talk about all things Genesis 1. What does it mean or what does it say about God? What does it say about our world and our place within the world? And what does it say about our vocation and what we're called to do as followers of Jesus? And we're gonna talk about all the controversial topics or at least touch on them like evolution and race relations and gender and science and faith and even what the nature of the Bible is. And of course, we're gonna come back and, and talk even more about Goldilocks and the three dinosaurs. And uh, I'll make one last plug for this. If, if you're interested and you wanna talk deeper about these topics, I would love for you to join us 
for our community hermeneutic time. It's a time where some of us in our community get together, we listen to each other's stories, we learn to get to know and love and pray for one another. We invite Jesus to be in the center of our time. We learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and we study God's word today and ask us what it might mean. So if you have any questions that you are burning to talk about from this series, love for you to join us 7.30 tonight. And my hope and my prayer for all of us is that as we start this series, we will develop a passion for God and for his story and we will find our place in it. So with the time left we have today, I just wanna look at the first verse briefly. And the first verse is a summary of everything that we're going to read in the rest of the story. So Genesis 1, 1, the first verse of the Bible reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wanna take a quick look at four things that this says and, and, and so in the hopes that it gives us a foundation for the study that we're about to head into. The first thing that we hear is that this story is about someone. The first words are actually about time. It says, in the beginning. And so we're tempted to think that this is a story about chronology, about history, about exactly how things happen. But most scholars believe that it isn't true. This isn't about time. Here's what Tim Mackey, one of the people from the Bible Project says. And this, this verse could be, or this phrase, in the beginning should be uh, translated an unspecified period of time in the past. Or we might translate it, when God began to create, or a long time ago, or back in the day, might be a great way of translating it for us in a modern speech today. It's not the focus of the time, it's referencing back to a period when God began to create, back in the day. So if it's not about time, what is this story ultimately about? It's about someone. In the beginning, back in the day, there was a God. He is going to be the key character in this story. Now, all of us come with presuppositions to who God is and what kind of character he can be. And again, we want to create space for all of us to share, safe spaces for us to share why we believe what we believe about God and to be listened to and, and to listen to other people and their experiences. But we also want to be people who come to the story of God and allow it to influence us, to meet God anew and make sure that we're not finding ourselves in the wrong story like Goldilocks. So that's an invitation to Genesis 1 is to meet this God. This is, this is the splash page of his website. The first thing that we read, what does God want to show us about himself? So in the beginning, God, and the next word is created. That there is someone, and this someone at the beginning of the story is a creator. And the first chapter outlines the, the work of this creator as a movement. He's creating something from something else. Um, it's interesting to see that in Genesis 1, we start with things already in the world. This is how verse 2 goes. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery deeps. So it's saying that there is something pre-existing that God is turning into something else. So it uses three words to describe this pre-existing something. I want us to just take a look at it quickly because it will tell us something about what kind of creator God is. So the first word it says about this pre-existent state is that it's formless and empty. This is the Hebrew phrase tohu wabohu. And uh, it, you can say wild and waste is one way of translating it, or like a wasteland, or a desert, or a wilderness. That's why in the picture from our series, we have a desert in the background. So what does God do with this wilderness? Well, verse 9 says that the, then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. 
God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. And so God is creating, he's creating a movement from tohu wabohu to a place that is full, from emptiness to fullness, from a desert into a forest, from a wasteland into a place that's possible for flourishing, for shalom. So it says the earth was formless and void. That's the first thing. And then it says darkness. Now, but like it is now, back then darkness was an inability to see anything. But you got to remember that they lived in a time uh, where there's no electricity. So it, when it was dark, it was also a time of inactivity. You were unable to do anything. You would be inert. It was also a time when you'd be very vulnerable to whatever was out there in the world. Darkness was, uh, you know, the things in the night that go bump could be coming to you and you have no clue. So you were, uh, you were up against maybe invaders or robbers or nocturnal predators. So it was a time of great fear, the darkness. And in the Bible, it can mean an inability to see the truth, to see things as they actually are, or to walk onto the right path. So what does God do with this pre-existent darkness in Genesis 1? Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning one day. So in the Bible, the light speaks of the goodness and blessing and presence of God. So he's taking this darkness and moving it to light, from a situation of fear and blindness and not knowing to truth and ability to see, from a non-ordered creation to an ordered creation with day and light and day and night. So it says the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery deeps. Now this phrase watery deeps is going to be a huge theme in our study together and we'll talk about it more in the weeks to come. But for today, I want to uh, define it by saying it's, it's a neutral, functionless state of non-organization and lifelessness, often associated with death. This is what the watery depths communicate to us. So what does God do with these watery depths? Verse six, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made expanse and separated the water underneath the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, evening came and then morning the second day. So here again, we see God's voice creating and the world goes from being functionless to being purposeful from chaos to organization, and from death to life, all just through the Creator's words. So what does it mean for us that there is a God who is a Creator, who is taking something and making it into something else? Briefly, I want to say three things. The first is that there's hope for each of us. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, author Dallas Willard shares about a man that I think we might be able to relate to. The man was told when he became a Christian, if he became a Christian, then people would see a marked difference in his life. And that the closer that he was to God, the more spiritual he would be, and the greater and the more visible that difference would be in him. But he was interviewed at age 50, 
And he said, I don't believe that anymore. And he found himself just very jaded about his faith and his ability to change. And here's what Dallas Willard concludes. He says, we settle for the idea that the change that makes a person Christian, whatever that is, may be totally undetectable from the human point of view. Only God's scanner can detect it. Uh, Dallas Willard calls this a barcode faith, that we settle just for being praying the prayer, we have the barcode, and at some point God is going to scan it. And I think that that can relate to many of us in our journey of faith. That at the beginning, whenever that was for us, we had this great hope, this great hope of being close to God, this great hope of experiencing eternal life, of change happening within our lives, of overcoming different areas of sin. But now, later, a few years after being a Christian, we can lose the hope that any of that is possible. And this passage is teaching us that there's always possibility for our lives to be transformed because our God is a creator. And he's in the business of bringing flourishing from these places of waste, from the tohu avohu of our lives. And so he can do that in your life and in mine. No matter what age we're in, that we don't have to settle with being a 30-year-old Christian, that our best years are behind us, or a 50-year-old Christian, or a seven-year-old Christian, that there is always hope because God's creative presence is always in the world and wanting to bring change into our lives. So there's hope for us, but there's also hope for our city. And not just because we might finally actually get this Broadway subway line built, or that people might figure out how to use the recycling containers that we have, or because there will be Christians that are the mayors and in the halls of power of Vancouver, but because Jesus is a creator. That is who he is. And so no matter how much darkness is around us, no matter if your friends or your family members or your neighbors seem so far away from God, that there is always hope because the very character of God is that he is a creator. And one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in John 1, which is a mirror passage from Genesis 1. And it's saying that in Jesus, a new creation is happening, a recreation. And at the end of that First chunk of, the, of John 1, it says that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. And that is the great hope we have when our God is a creator. I chatted with someone this week and, and he said, you know, how he came to faith was he was high at a party. He was sitting on a couch and he said, I can't tell you any different, but that God walked into that party. Jesus met me there and he called my name and he says, I love you. He said, come and follow me. And he said, I've left that party. I never went back. And ever since, I've been trying to build the house of God so that people can meet Jesus. This is the kind of God that we serve who can take things from darkness to light because he is a creator. There is hope for every person and there's hope for our city. So there's hope for us because God is a creator. There's hope for our city. And then there's hope for us as a church too. You know, we saw in the gospel of Mark that the call to follow Jesus is the call to become humble, to become like a nobody, to serve. And not because those things are awesome, but that in accepting the, the following of Jesus, the picking up our cross and following him, the path of downward mobility, the dying to self, we open ourselves up to the recreative power, the resurrection of the Holy Spirit. That's where God can create is in these places of humbleness and of death. By his power, the Bible says water and life can spring up from the desert. And we can 
emerge as a forest of trees, deeply rooted, bearing fruit for the blessing of the world. If God is a creator, and that's what Genesis 1 is trying to tell us, that this is who he is, this is the primary characteristic we know him as in this story, then there's always hope for each one of us, that God is not finished with us no matter where we're at. There's hope for our city and there's hope for our people in our world. And then there's hope for us as a church to shine God's light into the world because he's a creator. So the verse reads, in the beginning, God created, and then it says the heavens and the earth. Now the heavens and the earth, not only is this verse a summary statement, but heavens and earth is also a summary statement. It's, it's trying to say everything, he created everything. Um, and everything that we're going to hear about in the rest of the story. And so the third thing I want us to see here is that this is a cosmic story. It's the whole ancient cosmos, everything they could imagine in their world, all that was seen and all that was unseen. For an ancient person, it would mean that the, the ground that they touched, you know, the soil and the water and the wine and the wood, everything that was part of the normal part of their lives, God created it. But when they would sit around the campfire and whisper to one another and look up into the sky and see the stars and the unknown and the mystery, that God was king over all of that too. And it's the same invitation for us. The things that make up the everyday normal stuff in our lives, our family, our world, our sea, our mountains, that God has created it all too in each one of us. But also the mysterious things that we're just learning about and even just learning to learn about through science, like black holes and quarks and, you know, universes way out there, that God is the king and the Lord of all of that too. See, the God of the Bible is not just a regional deity. He's not a small God that's limited to one place. He's not stuck in time in ancient Mesopotamia. He's not stuck in a place like Abbotsford. He's not just limited to the walls of our church or to a time on Sunday that we give to him. And he's not even just the king of our hearts, as important as those words might be to some of us. He is the cosmic king of the entire universe, of everything that we can see and everything that's beyond what we can see out there, the mystery of the universe. And Genesis 1 is trying to say to us, if that's not your story, then please eat some chocolate pudding from these bowls, but exit out the back door leave this story and enter into God's story where he is the creator God from the beginning of time that has made absolutely everything in our universe. So back in the day, someone, this God, has created everything in the cosmos. That's Genesis 1.1. But the question lingers, why? Why has God created all of these things? Well, what many scholars think and what I've become convinced of is that what God is ultimately doing here is he's building a temple and we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks and I'll try to make a better case for it. But for now, I just want to say that that's what he's doing. He's building a temple in the desert, in the wasteland. And in the ancient Near East, the temple was many things. It was, as we talked about before, the place that heaven and earth overlap, where God's space meets our space. And so as such, it was a place that people could come to worship, to meet with God. And it was a place where they could be restoried into the story of God. Every day they would be going to work. And just like maybe some of us, we go to work every day. Um, you know, we get wrapped up in our own stories of our family, of our mortgage, of the different things that we need to do to climb the, the career path or prepare our kids for school. And going into the space of worship to the temple was a place where we could be restored and re reminded that my little life is, is important, but it's part of a much greater story. 
It's very similar to the moral of the story in Goldilocks that we remind ourselves we're in the wrong story and we come back in a temple to be part of God's cosmic story. The temple was also a place of rest that people would cease working and go into the temple to meet God. It's an invitation to come and meet God and rest. And it was a place where God dwelt, that it was his home. The temple was the place that that the divine touched down on earth, where he's very near to us and we could become near to him. And Genesis 1 is making an absolutely staggering and wild claim that was very unique at the time, that the whole creation is God's temple, a place where we can rest, a place where we can worship, a place where we can experience God's story and a place that we can experience God's presence. Old Testament scholar John Walton, who I learned a lot from in preparation for this series, he says the most central truth to the creation account is that this world is a place of God's presence. God is making a world where he can be with us. That's his heart and his design. And again, I think this runs counter to the story that many of us live by. I think almost all of us, whether we're Christians or not, we, we live functionally as deists. A person who's a deist says maybe God kickstarted the universe, but he's very, very distant and far away. He's out there somewhere. And if you're a Christian, maybe you, you, you again, you might say, oh no, God is very close, but we live our lives this way. You know, Sunday morning is sacred space. My community group is sacred space. My quiet time is sacred space, but the rest of my world is not. It's, it's secular space or it's a place God is very distant from. But Genesis 1 runs right against this idea. As Mo Willems might say, you're in the wrong story if that's the way you think. Because God is not distant, but he's present. He's active and he's creating in order that he can be present. And his heart is still the same with us today. Again, Tim Mackey says this, Genesis 1 shows that God's purpose is to fill the earth with the life and the presence of heaven. And this is exactly what he wants to do with our lives in our city and in the life of our church. That the beginning of the story doesn't start with me or with you. It starts with God. That he's the main character and he has some really important things to say about what this world is like and our place within it. He's the God who is in the business of creating and he's taking the tohu avohu of our world and bringing light and purpose and meaning. And it's a God who wants to be with you. If nothing else, he is trying and trying to create a space where he can be with you and you can be in his presence. And so at the outset of the series, I just wanna ask, is that your story? Is that the story that you think of? You know, all of us, like I said, we have narratives when we come to the Bible and God's story, some of them good, some of them not so good. Does yours match the story that we see in this first verse of the Bible? That might be a great question for you to discuss in your community groups. And if not, maybe you're in the wrong story. And so I just wanted to remind you and invite you, like Mo Willems does, if you find yourself in the wrong story, leave. The back door is open. And I invite you to join us as we explore this opening chapter of God's story. Maybe for the first time, maybe it's for the first time in a long time. But not just to a new story and to learn this for the fun or interest of learning it, but actually to the storyteller himself, to the one who has this explosive creative power that by the word of his mouth, he can make something beautiful out of the tohu avohu of our lives. So I invite you to him. I invite you to Jesus, the God-man, who is in the business of recreating and has paved the way to God's presence in our lives. Would you pray with me as we close? 
God, we thank you for who you are and the explosive truth in this first chapter. Teach us of the ways that we live out of step with this story, that we, like Goldilocks, are in the wrong story. And uh, help us to uh, exit out the back door and to find ourselves in your story instead. Not just to find yourselves in your story, but to actually to meet you. So Jesus, we invite you now into our presence as we sing, as we give, as we maybe fellowship with one another and hang out and chat. I pray that you would um, be in our midst, show us that you are there, and take these realities and bring them, drill them deeply into our heart, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.